I mentioned a moment ago the importance of memorizing Scripture, that God brings the truths that we've hidden in our hearts to our minds and to our hearts in those critical times. I want to emphasize the importance of memorizing great hymns. This hymn particularly, the Lord has used in my own heart and life in some of the deepest challenging and the deepest sorrows that I've experienced. And to be able to say, my God is, is true each morning new, sweet comfort, yet shall fill my heart and pain and sorrow shall depart. Just that sense that I can trust him. Uh, God has used that time and again. Well, please turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> uh, a number of years ago, I did something that I do not recommend that you do. I was sitting in the back row here at Grace Baptist Church, and the pastor at the time was preaching through this very text. And he came to verse 12, where we read, we're to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, at that point, my curiosity got the better of me. I, I know there's these two Greek words that in the New Testament that can be translated patience. And I was wondering, which word is it used here in this particular text? So I got out my phone, and I opened up my Bible app, and I looked at the Greek text, and what I discovered made a profound impact on my life. Now, I'm not sure I heard anything else the pastor said that day uh, because I was having dealings with the Lord. Now, again, I don't recommend you follow that example, okay? Uh, it's important that we make a habit of listening to God's Word, and uh, we prayerfully and carefully prepare the sermon, and we want you to carefully and prayerfully listen, but sometimes the Lord kind of breaks through and takes us in a different direction, even as we're hearing the Word, and I, I, I recognize that, but in general, we don't want you to go on rabbit trails. But that particular Sunday, and that particular passage of scripture uh, the Lord used his way his word to accomplish something in me that the preacher never envisioned it was not part of what he was talking about the title of my message this morning is faith and patience and I want us to focus on the interplay between these two vital character qualities now uh, as you as you see in verse 12 and following or 13 and following it's talking about the faithfulness of God that he swore by himself and we're going to deal with that uh, when we pick it, pick this up in a few weeks but first of all I want us to look at faith and patience and see how those two character qualities inform our relationship with our Lord and our journey through our Christian lives. And as we saw last week, this passage is about our perseverance, persevering in the faith to the very end. And the writer wants us to be certain that we persevere, that we are earnest in our faith. And he calls us in that context to, be, to emulate the perseverance of the Old Testament saints. And he mentions Abraham particularly in verses 12 to 15. You look, jump forward to chapter 11, we call that the hall of faith where he highlights the testimonies of faith and faithfulness of many of the great Old Testament saints. But here in verse 12, it says they inherit the promises through faith and patience. And our focus this morning is the fact that you and I are called to emulate their example. We're called to emulate their faith and their patience. So first, my first point is let us emulate the faith of the saints in glory. The second one, you can guess, let us emulate the patience of the saints in glory. Of glory. And then finally, uh, looking at the vital connection between faith and patience. So first of all, let us emulate the faith of the saints in glory. What is faith? It's important you understand it. 
What is faith? It's not this blind leap into the dark. It's not name it and claim it, whatever you imagine. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's, it's, it's clinging to the things that God has promised. It's assurance that he has promised, and we've placed our hope in what he has promised and in his character, and it believes he is true, whether I can see it or not, whether I feel it or not, it's the conviction, the certainty of things not seen. Hebrew, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, there's a difference between saving faith and what you might call living faith. Uh, and you're, you may be saying, well, what are you talking about? Okay. Well, saving faith is when we, that initial and constant through our lives, trusting in the atoning death of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, to gain us righteousness before God the Father, and eternal entry into heaven. John 3.16 says um, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him has eternal life or doesn't perish but has eternal life. Saving faith believes in Christ for that forgiveness, for that cleansing, for that justification, for eternal life. And if you have not truly trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life, what I'm getting ready to say for the rest of the message is really going to kind of be not apply to you that much because the starting place is to trust the Lord Jesus. And at, uh, at every point, he is always saying, come, come, come to me, trust in me. And I urge you even now, if you're not sure, do I know the Lord? Put your trust in Christ. Stop trusting in your own self, your own righteousness, your own ability to present yourself acceptable to God. Jesus has paid it all. And so he tells us to put our trust in him. But secondly, there's what you might call a living faith. It goes beyond believing that initial promise for salvation. And it, uh, daily faith, faith focuses on all of the promises of God. It, it, it's a faith that leads to comfort and hope and boldness and contentment and endurance. As we sang, I will stand on every promise of your word. It's that sense that uh, he holds me that I cannot fall. Wherefore to him, I leave it all. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Two elements of this living faith. We believe he exists, which means we believe he's true and what he says is true, and that he rewards those who seek him. And if you believe that, if you really have faith and you believe he rewards those who seek him, you're going to do what? You're going to seek him. Because you want that reward. You set your heart on him. Saving faith believes that the promises of Scripture are true so that we live in light of those promises. For instance, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus has been saying through, through Matthew 6 that uh, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Or, uh, you know, the pagans run after all this stuff. Your father knows what you need before you even ask. And then Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you or added to you. And so, real living faith says, okay, God has promised to provide what I need, so I'll seek first his kingdom. Rather than clamoring after stuff and worrying about stuff like unbelievers do who don't live by faith. Or Hebrews 13, verse 5, we read, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We're rich because we have the presence of God. And that is our strength and our stability and our security. Or Isaiah 41 and verse 10. The Lord says, fear not, 
for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I think the New American Standard says, do not anxiously look about you. Uh, as if you're, you're wondering where's help going to come from. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, which uh, if you believe that promise, you're not going to live by fear. And it's over and over again, 300 and some odd times, the Lord says, don't fear. But it doesn't say, don't fear, you big coward. It says, don't fear because I'm with you. And he promises his presence. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 17, we read this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal glory, an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. The glory to be revealed in heaven so far outweighs present suffering, they will seem insignificant. Now, I, I don't want to minimize the kind of sorrow and suffering people endure in this life. And some of you may be in the, in the midst of the trial of your life, and I don't minimize that at all. What Paul is telling us is expand your mind to believe there is a glory that is so great it will make even the worst things that can happen in this life seem insignificant. We have to take that by faith because we sure can't see it or feel it, can we? Right? But faith believes these promises. It holds to these promises. It lives in light of these promises. It regards them as reality, even though we can't see them, even though we cannot feel them, even though by all appearances it seems like they can't possibly be true. And the enemy says, God is not with you. God is not going to take care of you. God is not going to provide for you. But faith holds to every promise of his word. Again, some of the promises are conditional, like seek first this kingdom and all these things will be added to you. And if we want all these things to be added to you, it means we don't clamor after all these things. We seek first his kingdom and trust him to be our provider. It believes the promise, and so it does what God has told us to do. It believes that he rewards those who seek him. Now, it's important that faith, it's not, you don't focus on how much faith you have. That's not our focus. Our focus should be on the faithfulness of God. You can have all the faith in the world in an idol, and it still can do nothing for you. The greatness of your faith is irrelevant. The reality is it's God. How faithful is he? Jesus says even faith the size of a mustard seed, that's enough. Because our faith is in the one who is truly faithful. And that, that, that living by faith, that trusting in him, will give us stability. It will give us security. It will give us the earnestness we need to persevere to the very end. Abraham, we read in verse 14, had a promise from God. In fact, it was a covenant that God made with Abraham. You remember God had called Abraham to leave his homeland, Ur of the Chaldees. He said, I want you to go to a place that I will show you. You've never been there before. You don't have a map. You don't have any idea how to get there. You don't have a GPS or anything else. I'll, I'll show you. See? Okay. And he picks up his family and he goes. And then one night, God takes him outside, and he says, look up the stars. I'm going to multiply you and make from you a multitude of nations, as many as the stars in the sky. That's the promise that Abraham had from God. And nearly 25 years later, he and Sarah still don't have a child, don't have a son. So where's the promise? And yet he continued to believe God's promise. Now, Genesis, if you go back and read the Genesis account, you'll say, you know, it sure looks like Abraham's faith faltered for a time. And it, it did, to be honest. But it's lovely. It's wonderful how Hebrews ignores that. 
It's just God's grace that focuses on the reality of his faith, even though at times it faltered. It's interesting, you read all of Hebrews 11, you realize Samson is mentioned there, as is the prostitute Rahab. And you realize where saints have real faith, their falters are forgotten. David had a promise from God. He was anointed that he was going to become the king. And, uh, and you might think that, you know, okay, very soon after that, he killed Goliath. He comes into to, to the court of King Saul, and he's in this privileged position. And he might think, I have a clear path from here to there, and it's going to be unhindered, and it's going to be better and better and better. And then Saul figures out that David is going to be the next king, and Saul says, not over my dead body. And Saul begins to pursue David for some years. And David is running for his life, clinging to the promise of God in spite of all appearances, living off the land when he ought to be living in the palace. Hebrews 11, verses 33 and 34, the writer says, What more shall I say? For, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and Samson and Jephthah, king of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's Daniel, who's not mentioned, by the way. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put armies, foreign armies, to flight. Through faith, these Old Testament saints believed God is faithful to his promises. And so they lived boldly. They lived obediently. They lived fruitless, fruitfully. And they accomplished exploits for the name of our God. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to be imitators of these saints in glory. We're to imitate their faith. We're to emulate the faith of our fathers. But secondly, let us emulate the patience of the saints in glory. Now, there, again, I, I said earlier, there are two different words that are translated patience in the Greek New Testament. The first word is hupomone. It literally means to remain under. And it's this endurance, this perseverance that remains under uh, and stands fast in the midst of difficulty. And in the, in the New Testament, this word is applied exclusively to difficult circumstances. It's steadfastness in, in the face of circumstances that would cause your knees to buckle. And uh, Romans 5, verse 3, it says, suffering produces endurance. James 1, 3 says, the, uh, the uh, testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Very same word. So there's a link here between faith and endurance or steadfastness. We believe God is with us, and the more fully you believe in God, the more you will endure and be steadfast. But when endurance fails, it's because there's a failure in our faith. But hupomone is not the word that we find here in Hebrews 6. The word we find is macrothumia. Okay, and I'm not going to give you a test on that later. It's just throwing those words out there. But the word macro means big or long. Thermal speaks of heat. So macrothumia, we might say, is a long boiling point. You don't melt down quickly. You don't have a short fuse. You're able to endure long. Sometimes it's translated long-suffering or forbearance. It's a slowness to take offense or to take matters into your own hands or to avenge wrong done to you. And it's interesting, this word is applied in the New Testament exclusively to patience with difficult people. 
hupomone, endurance, steadfastness in the face of trials, difficult circumstances, macrothumia, patience, long-suffering in the face of dealing with difficult people. It's interesting, that word hupomone is never applied to God anywhere in the Bible. And the reason is because there are no circumstances that are difficult for God. He's all-powerful. Nothing's hard for God. But he gives us that perseverance and steadfastness. But the word macrothumia does apply to God. He is long-suffering. He's slow to anger and abounding in love and loving kindness. He doesn't get exasperated with us. He doesn't lose patience with us. Now, here's the discovery I made when I checked out of that sermon so many years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm reading verse 12 and verse 15, and I'm, I'm seeing that both of those verses use this word macrothumia, patience with difficult people. And my immediate question is, why? Who is it that Abraham had to be patient with, and who are we called to be patient with in this particular passage? Now, remember, when you're interpreting the Scriptures, context is king. So what does the context tell us how this word is used? How does that inform what it actually means? Verse 12, we read of faith and patience. Well, who's the object of our faith? Not a hard question. God is. In verse 15, it says, Abraham patiently waited and so inherited the promise. Well, let me ask you this. Who made that promise? God did. So who was Abraham being patient with? And that word patiently waited is just the verb form of long-suffering, of macrothumia. Who was Abraham being macrothumia or long-suffering with? And the answer is only, can only be God. He's the one who made the promises. He's also the one who took a very long time to fulfill those promises. But Abraham believed that God was true to his promises. And he believed that God will fulfill those promises. So he waited patiently and he inherited what God had promised. So hear me, brothers and sisters, you and I are called to emulate the faith of the saints in glory. Those who trusted in God, they believed him, they believed his word is true, and they lived like it. But we're also called to emulate their patience as they patiently waited for God to fulfill his promises. Even though in many cases it seemed to take a very long time. And if you read Hebrews 11 closely, you'll see the evidence of the faith of Abraham and Noah and Moses and all these others. The evidence of that faith is they waited on the Lord and they continued faithful until he delivered. Now, this is really kind of radical. Uh, We're not used to thinking of the need to be patient with God. We think being patient with somebody is because they've done something wrong, right? Right? I, I, I don't know if you remember these bumper stickers that used to be out there years ago. Uh, please be patient. God is not through with me yet. Right? What's well, almost like God is saying, please be patient. I am not through with you yet. Isn't that interesting? We generally think if I have to be patient with somebody, it's because they're doing something wrong. And in spite of what they might do, we don't get angry. We don't boil over. We don't melt down. We're long-suffering. But God never does anything wrong. So what does it mean to be patient with God? Let me illustrate. Children, you ever been on a trip with mom and dad and it just seems like you'll never get there? You're driving hour after hour after hour and eventually about every 20 minutes, are we there yet? Are we there yet? 
Now, your dad has told you, it's going to take a while. This is a long trip. You just have to be patient. But you, it's hard because you want to be there. You're, you're uncomfortable in the car. You, you want to get out. You want to run around. You're, you may be hungry. You may need to go to the bathroom. Maybe your little brother or sister is bothering you, and you just want to get there. And so you have to be patient with the circumstances of being in that car for a long period of time. But there's another aspect of patience, too. There's patience with your father. So you don't whine and complain to him. You don't think that somehow he is not being a very good father because you're not there yet. My dad said he will get us there safely and he will get us there at the right time. He's not going to drive 100 miles an hour and break the law and get us in trouble. To do it, he's going to get there correctly. So I'm going to trust my dad and I'm going to be patient with my dad. So in the same way, God never does wrong. He's perfect. All his ways are perfect and wise and loving and good. And he makes these glorious promises to us. And sometimes it seems like he takes a very long time to fulfill those promises. And even at times, like the psalmist, we may feel like God has forgotten us. Waiting patiently on the Lord can be difficult. And the psalmist expresses this in Psalm 13, and we're going to look at it more in a minute, but David is crying out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? God can't forget his child. But it sure felt like to David, God had forgotten him. And apparently that forever means that whatever David was going through was taking a long time. And by all appearances, David felt abandoned. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to walk by faith, not by sight. We're all called to live by faith and not by what we feel. And when it feels like God is not near, that is not what's actually going on. God is always with you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we're called to, be, to believe that God is faithful. And believing he's faithful means we trust him. And we're to be patient with him, which means we wait on the Lord. So we, we, we're called to emulate the faith of these saints in glory. We're called to emulate, emulate the patience of these saints in glory. But I want to spend some time now talking about the, the vital connection between faith and patience. This waiting on the Lord is an important theme in the Bible. And I'm not asking you to turn there, but if you were to look at Psalm 27, we find David under attack. And in the midst of this attack, he proclaims in verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And throughout the psalm, we find David uh, this, this, uh, expressing his confidence, his trust in the Lord, but also praying for deliverance, protection from enemies. And, and this expression, he's determined he will seek the Lord. And we, he concludes with verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's an expression of David's faith. And then in verse 14, he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We have this expression of faith, but we also have this expression of patience. Both interplay. They feed one another. Uh, going back to Psalm 13, he's going to put it up on the board, uh, on the wall. David is struggling in Psalm 13. He's crying out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Whatever was going on, and maybe this is when Saul was chasing him. Maybe it was when his son Absalom ran him out of town in an insurrection. Maybe some other point in his life 
where he was pursued by some other enemy we're not sure of, but it was wearing his patience thin, and he cries out, how long, O Lord? He's been afflicted. He cries out to God for refuge, but it seems like God is silent. It seems like God is not, uh, not paying attention, and he's saying, will, will you forget me forever? And again, God cannot forget his child. He will not. But it just underscores the fact that being patient with God can be very difficult because he's building our faith. So the walk by faith and not by feelings. There's seven other Psalms at least that ask that question, how long, O Lord? It's a recurring theme in the scriptures. In verse 3 in Psalm 13, he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Unless my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. In other words, he's saying, Lord, come quickly before it's too late. If you don't show up soon, it's all over. I need you to do this soon. His patience, is, it, it, it's, it's difficult to, to wait. But then we come to verses 5 and 6. He says, but I have trusted your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt, he has dealt bountifully for, with me. David is now looking back in the past of how God has dealt with him bountifully and saying, I know I can trust him for the future. I will sing. I will rejoice. God's faithfulness in the past fuels our trust or our faith in him for the future. And that faith And God's faithfulness enables him to wait and be patient with God. I said there's seven psalms that ask the Lord, ask the question, how long? There are actually nine psalms, at least, that tell us to wait on the Lord. They either declare us or instruct us. Declare, I will wait or instruct us to wait on the Lord. And it's a combination of faith and patience. Faith leads us to trust. Patience leads us to wait. Now, the Bible describes waiting periods for many Old Testament saints. We see Abraham mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 6. If you look at the life of David, I mentioned a moment ago, he was anointed to be the king, and yet he's running for his life, living in caves, living off the land, waiting patiently. In fact, David had two occasions where Saul had fallen asleep in a cave, and David was there, and his men were saying, God has delivered him into your hands. Kill him now, and all this is over. And David said, far be it from me to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, knowing that he himself was anointed. It's like, I'm going to wait on God. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. That's amazing. That's amazing to think about. Or Joseph. Remember as a young man, Joseph has this dream that his brothers would bow down to him one day. Now, I'm not sure it was the greatest wisdom in the world for Joseph to share that with his brothers who already didn't like him because he was daddy's favorite. Uh, But they decided they would make sure that never happened, and they sold him into slavery, and he was taken off into Egypt. And for somewhere near 20 years, he lived separated from his family, first as a slave, then as a prisoner. But eventually, he was promoted to what I call the prime minister of Uh, Egypt in charge of food storage and distribution. But after about 20 years, David or Joseph saw that dream fulfilled, but it took many, many years of waiting, of patiently trusting in God. Or Job, 
Job suffered terrible affliction. He was a man who feared God and shunned evil. He was blameless and upright before the Lord, and yet he was afflicted because of Satan's uh, assertion that Job only trusted God because God protected him and gave him a lot of stuff. And Job's friends said, this is clear evidence God has abandoned you. This is clear evidence that you must have done something terrible and God is judging you. And Job knew that, that he'd not done something terrible. But it sure felt like God had abandoned him. It seemed like God was far off. And so he's, he's praying for relief. But eventually, as you go through the book, you find Job is pleading with God for an explanation, for some answer, for some drawing near. Because the silence of heaven was even greater trial than the affliction he was enduring. Now, we all have experienced at one point or another some kind of a holding pattern. You know what a holding pattern is, Right? You're flying in a, in a plane, and, and you approach the airport, and then it comes over the, 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 the PA system. The pilot says, I'm sorry, but the pattern is full. Uh, there's something going on down on the, on the runway, and, and we've got to circle the airport. So you're just circling the airport in this holding pattern, and it just seems like it takes forever, right? And sometimes we live in holding patterns. It might be trials or afflictions, illness. Or injury. It could be sorrow and loss that seems like it'll never get better. For some, it's longing. It's an unfulfilled longing, like the longing to be married or the longing to have a child. Or it could be the loss of a job and, and, and an extended period of unemployment and uncertainty. It could be a time of depression. And one of the greatest challenges for a person who is struggling with depression is the sense that I'm not sure this will ever end. I don't know that I will ever be happy again. And that hopelessness is crushing. It could simply be a sense of spiritual dryness that God seems a million miles away. But whatever the cause, we find ourselves in this holding pattern. We find ourselves uh, uh, not where we want to be. And here's a really, really important biblical principle. When you are in a holding pattern, when you're waiting Psalm 39, which is also a psalm of lament written by David, he says in Psalm 39, 7, and now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. We think we're waiting for relief. We're waiting for provision. We're waiting for, waiting for marriage or a baby or healing or a job or whatever. But in reality, there's a spiritual dynamic between, between every single period of waiting in our lives. And whatever else we might be waiting for, I want to urge you to focus your attention and say, I will wait for you, my God. Because when you realize, I'm waiting for the Lord to do whatever he's going to do to sustain me in the meantime, and I'm waiting for him, that transforms our experience of waiting. And so we need to trust God, but we also need to be patient with God. We trust him in his wisdom and his love, and we're patient with his timing. Part of the challenge here is because we live in between the already and the not yet. God has made these glorious promises to us. Jesus has come. He has fulfilled the righteousness required by God. He has died an atoning death on the cross and paid for our sins. He has purchased us for his own people. He has sent his spirit who has, uh, who has given us life and sealed us for the day of redemption. We are adopted by our heavenly father. We're declared righteous in his sight and we have the promise of eternal glory. All that is already, but the experience of that eternal glory, that, Roman, that Revelation 21, I've made all things new, that's not yet. 
And our hearts long for that glory that makes present sorrows and suffering seem insignificant. Our hearts long for all things new where there's no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. Or the old order, which is now the present order, when that passes away. We don't see that yet. We have to wait patiently. Peter addresses this need for patience. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, there are scoffers who will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It seems like, okay, he said he was going to come back. Christians in the first century thought it was going to be in their lifetime. It wasn't. And Christians in every generation since then have thought it was going to be in their lifetime, but it wasn't. And it seems like maybe he'll never come back. And that's what the enemy keeps feeding our minds. Maybe he'll never come back. Maybe we've missed something really important. But see, we live between the already of the promise and not yet a fulfillment. And we wait patiently, asking God, give me great faith to believe your promises. Now, waiting is hard. I don't like to wait. I prefer the microwave, not the slow cooker, right? And that's true for most of us. I don't want to hand write a note. I can send an email or a text message. Uh, We don't like to wait. I I love Amazon because it gets here tomorrow, you know? I would ask you, are you in a holding pattern? Are you waiting for something really important in your life? Are, Are you finding it difficult to be patient in realizing there are circumstances that try my patience, but from what you're saying, Pastor Jamie, I need to learn to be patient with God. And in the midst of those circumstances, you might find yourself struggling with things like fear or anger. Any moms of little kids or dads of little kids, that it's hard to be patient with them sometimes. When will you learn, right? Or anxiety or worry or just exhaustion. You're just tired of the same trial every single day. When will it end? And you might be saying, I don't know if I can take much more. And I would urge you, go back to Psalm 39, 7, and for what do I wait? My hope is in you. God is calling you, wait patiently on the Lord. Wait patiently for him to move, to provide, to relieve, to deliver, to fulfill his promise, whatever that promise may be, so that you look not to your circumstances. You look to our Lord who's faithful to his promise. He gives hope, and he gives help. Now, I want to make an important distinction here as we wrap things up. It says the Old Testament saints inherited the promises. And we need to understand, what has God promised? And what has he not promised? Because we have those uh, in our uh, world today, in our own country, that are name it and claim it prosperity gospel preachers. And if you have enough faith, you can be healed. You can have wealth. You can have good health. You can have whatever. And you can name it and you can claim it and you can... Make God's promises whatever you want them to be. Well, Abraham did have a promise. He said, you're going to have a son. Very specific. You and Sarah. So when Ishmael was born to Hagar, God was like, that's not it. You and Sarah will have a son. Lydia and I went through many years, seven years, trying to have a child. Actually, five, I guess. Seven years after we got married, we still didn't, we're not gotten pregnant. And so... Uh, we wrestled with those years of infertility, and it was difficult. But we did not have a promise from God that we would ever be able to have children. It's important we understand what has God promised and what has he not promised. He has promised 
peace. He has promised contentment. He has promised fulfillment and joy and a satisfied heart. Now, in, in his grace, we have three children, two by adoption. One was born to us. We had, actually had two miscarriages sometime later. But those years for, of infertility, they were hard. They tried our faith and required that we wait. And it was difficult. His promises were not, I will give you a baby at the right time. His promises were things like John 14, 27, when the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, peace, I leave you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I give you peace. We didn't have peace. And we were laboring to get that peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that we are to uh, make our request known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we were struggling to lay hold of that peace that he did promise. Or 4, 13 in Philippians where Paul is in prison and he said, I've learned how to be content even in unfavorable circumstances because I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And that sense that I can't do this anymore. No, I can do whatever God would have me do through Christ who gives me strength. He has promised that. Even learn to be content. Content in the circumstances I myself would not have chosen. Content doesn't mean I'm disgruntled, but I'll just accept it. It means I'm truly content with God's providences. My God is true. Each morning new, sweet comfort, yet shall fill my heart. Pain and sorrow shall depart. And he says at the very end, wherefore to him I leave it all. He's promised that we can do that. If we're going to wait patiently for the Lord, if we're going to set our hearts on his promises, it is vital that we understand what he has promised and what he has not. The promises of, uh, of, to the Old Testament saints in many cases were very specific. But the promises to us are not as individual. There is not a promise in here that says you will get married or you will have this job of your dreams or you will have this or that or the other, or you will be healed, or you'll have a child. We don't have those promises. We have the promises of God's provision, of his peace, of his comfort, of his help, and of glory that outweighs whatever he may take us through in this life. If we're going to be patient and wait on the Lord, we need to know what it is we're waiting for. We're waiting for him. We're waiting for him to accomplish his goodwill and to restore our joy. So brothers, sisters, let us learn to trust him and to wait patiently for him. I, I mentioned in the introduction that God used this very passage, and particularly verse 12, uh, in a mighty way in my life, this combination of faith and patience to accomplish something very significant. And many of you know, uh, I was serving on pastoral staff here from 1984 until 2007, for almost 23 years. And because of some difficult situations in my life, I found it necessary to resign from ministry and step aside. And we stayed here in this church during this time. It's our family. Where else are we going to go? But for eight years, I was engaged in secular employment. I worked for three years for a wonderful boss named Mark Hatfield at Hatfield Builders. And every day I drove home thinking, I am not good at this job. It's tough. I drove an armored truck. I inspected cars on the floor at the BMW plant. And for all those years, with a longing, a, a, recurrent, a returning longing for ministry, I had this crushing sense that what I did just didn't matter very much. 
I longed to do something that was of eternal significance. And day after day after day, I felt like I was just marking time. Now, I was providing for my family. I was working as under the Lord. But there was this, this, this weight on me. There were times I, I, I call it my, 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 my wilderness wandering. I felt like I was on the shelf. And there were times I was discouraged, and I would say even spiritually disillusioned. And at some point in that time, my wife entered into a very, very severe clinical depression, not because of our circumstances, because of some medical or physical things that we later identified. But it was low. It was hard. And it was at this low point I heard these, this message. This text came uh, to my heart and my life. And, and the Lord spoke to me powerfully through his word, not new revelation, but through illumination, making his word come to light and bring light and hope to my life. And I realized I need a new dose of faith and patience. I need to learn what does it mean to wait on the Lord, not wait on a call to ministry or a restoration of this or whatever. I need to wait on the Lord. He is the one in whom I must put my hope. And there was one promise that came to me over and over again. It was 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Where Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time or the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I had to come to believe, trust that God really cared for me and cared for my family. Even though things at the present time were not looking very good at all. And I had to believe that if I would humble myself under his mighty hand, doing jobs that and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm sitting here with a master's degree going, a kid with a GED is doing a better job of this than I am. That was humbling. It was humiliating at times. They'd look at me and go, why are you so slow? Well, because I'm old. And I don't belong here. But I'm stuck here. It was, it was tough. But if I would humble myself under his mighty hand, he would exalt me in due time. Now, I don't stand up here and I'm now restored as pastor of this church and now I'm exalted. And that's not what I'm saying at all. But I'll tell you, I never dreamed. I never dared to imagine I would be at, back in pastoral ministry at Grace Baptist Church. I didn't, think, I didn't think it was possible. But the Lord knew what he wanted for us. Now, I'm not asking you to be an imitator of me by any stretch. Not at all. My faith and my patience faltered. It was through all of that that I learned the importance of faith and patience. But I'm telling you, God is faithful. You can trust him. And he's good. And his timing is right. And you can wait on him. And he used my wilderness wandering to teach me that valuable lesson. Brothers and sisters, we can trust him. And we can wait on him with confidence. Let us do so.